Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack World War II today and I'm really excited. Alina, who have you got on? So we've got with us Jonathan Trochu, a former military officer, historian and author. Uh, he's written books like The Defeat of the Luftwaffe, Voices of the Flemish Waffen-SS, and his most recent book, uh, D-Day Through German Eyes, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you very much for having me. Really looking forward to speaking to you all. Oh, this is going to be really good. It's been a while since we did something decent on sort of Western Europe in World War Two, something battley. So uh, let's just get stuck in with it. Uh, this is great. So obviously we know what's going on and we've covered before what, what happens uh, with us landing. On, in France, but what state is the German army in? Uh, what are they expecting? They must know something's coming. They definitely do. Uh, I mean, so, so they know the Allies are going to are going to land in France uh, in the summer of 1944. Everything points to that. The Allies themselves have made it made it perfectly clear. Um, we were pretty much bogged down in, in Italy. Nothing much was happening there. So we're going to land in France, and you know, for the Germans, their issue was where. Because France has got almost as much coastline as, as, as we have uh, in the UK. Um, so the Germans did what they, well, what they shouldn't have done, but understandably so, is that they, they spread their jam all over the coastline. Um, so they had troops on the, the southern French coastline around Marseille, all the way up the Bay of Biscay, Brittany, all through the Cherbourg Peninsula, uh, and Normandy up the Pas de Calais. And in effect, they, they had to take some bets. They didn't have um, uh, endless numbers of men, guns and, uh, and panzers. So they had to kind of pick where they thought uh, the, the, the British, the Americans and, and, the, and the free French, the Canadians, where they were going to land. And they thought, go for the shortest angle. So put your best troops in the Pas de Calais. Um, it's the shortest distance. You can see the white cliffs from there. This is where, um, you know, they thought we were going to come across. They put their best troops there. Everyone else was pretty spread, you know, thin, thinly spread. But those troops themselves, even though they had, you know, in, in Western Europe, they had about 850,000 men, you know, 1,200 panzers and self-propelled guns, which, which is a lot. Um, you know, it's almost one in three uh, of Germany's panzers at the time and, and about one in five of its, of, of its soldiers. But it was the quality that was lacking. Um, mm-hmm. You know, not just the quantity. So, uh, you know, fascinating things such as I, I found out during the research for the book and so on was even even watching, you know, Saving Private Ryan, that that horrendous <laughs> opening scene uh, and so on of, of uh, you know Tom Hanks and, and the Americans coming uh, ashore, uh, you know, on the beach, uh, and at the end of it, after they'd lost so many uh, so many men, 
you see a couple of the German soldiers stand up uh, and try to surrender and the Americans gun them down. But the, the, the interesting thing about that um, is that the, the Germans are speaking Czech. Yeah. So they're not speaking German. And that's and that was actually true. So it wasn't just some extras who got it wrong um, and, it, and it wasn't you know, a, a miscue. Um, it was the fact of the matter is that a lot of the German soldiers they had in the West, the divisions had been filled out with, with you know, booty Germans. So, yeah. so ethnic Poles, ethnic Czechs, who'd more or less been told, right, as far as we're concerned, you're now Germans. Get, get in a German uniform, here's a rifle, and stand on the, stand on the West Wall to, to face the invasion. And needless to say, not many of those, of those guys and girls were, were interested in, in, you know, fighting and dying for Hitler. Um, there, there was also a lot of, of full-blown Russians. Um, so by this stage of the war, um, almost one in ten um, of, of every German soldier on all fronts were, were Russians, um, usually former prisoners of war, many of who captured from the from the Red Army and faced either starvation in a uh, you know starvation death from disease and, and, and maltreatment in a German prisoner of war camp, or volunteer uh, for the German army, and that's unsurprisingly what a lot of them did. Um, and I have then, a friend actually. His grandfather was Czech, um, ended up in France, so he's French. But uh, so it, he fought for the German army in World War Two in the West. And when you say why, well, because he didn't have a choice. And, that, and this was the thing. It's a, it's such a it's such a strange thing to think about that that it, it wasn't just Germans who were there. And you always think, you know, the, the propaganda photos of the time of these eagle-eyed, you know, tall, blonde German soldiers, rifle over the, over the shoulder, background of huge, big, you know, beach guns, you know, waiting to face the invasion. And, and it was a myth. And, you know, it was an absolute myth. So many of the soldiers um, were, had been classed as medically unfit uh, prior to their call-up in, the, you know, in early 1944. Uh, many, had been, many were wounded and injured from the Eastern Front. They lost toes and fingers and noses to frostbite and whatever, um, and were just retreads. Uh, and had been forced back into the, you know, back into uniform um, to sit on the West Wall. Um, and and that, that doesn't detract. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to, I, I don't want, you know, listeners to get the idea that, that they were all absolutely rubbish. And so there was never going to be any problem with the landings. That's not the case. But but equally, you know, it wouldn't be the truth to say that the, the German army in northern France in the summer of 1944 was the was the best fighting force that they had. It, it just simply wasn't. It was just it was a very, very complex structure. Uh, and it even got to the point where there were Nazi uh, officials uh, in various you know eastern areas uh, and what have you that would be, you know, Polish or Czech or, or whatever. Um, and, and so and they were racing you know against their next door neighbour to, to you know show how many Germans you know in, in inverted commas were, were in their area. So they'd send their officials to a village uh, to to investigate the ethnic background of the of the population. With, with orders to, you know, well, no matter what those people say, tell them they are ethnic Germans, whether they like it or not. Uh, and if they don't, we'll, we're going to deport them. Um, but if they do, then they get to keep their house, their, their farm and whatever. And they can also, you know, have a job and so on. And so, I mean, it was just, it was just a, a, an incredibly challenging and vicious time for, for everyone involved because, it, you know, it, it wasn't a case of if you made a wrong decision, oh, well, never mind, it didn't really have an impact. It was if you made a wrong decision, then, yeah, as you said, the, the consequences could be utterly catastrophic. So tell us about the beginning of the 6th of June, 1944. 
how how do they experience the arrival? I mean, so so there is at a point someone spots a massive invasion force heading their way. But very much so. I mean, it's, it's you, you know the, the invasion fleet itself was obviously the largest fleet of vessels ever assembled, um, and you'd think that they would have spotted it at, whilst it was out at sea. Um, you know, you couldn't lose this damn thing. Uh, and it would have either been, uh, you know, uh, German ships or, or submarines or German aircraft would have spotted it, radioed it into to the, the, the guys on the land and said, it's coming your way. You know, get ready. Um, but of course, but, but at that stage of the game, you know, a German plane could barely get in the sky um, without being blown out of it by the Anglo-American air forces. And, and the seas were swept clean. Um, of, of German boats. And also, they just didn't expect it to come towards Normandy. They thought it would be, as I said, further, further to the north, uh, and so on against the Pas de Calais. So, so they missed it. So, so literally in the, you know, in the, in the, in the sequence of the longest day where, where the mist, you know, uh, uh, kind of disappears, um, and the German officer's looking out of the bunker and there's this massive armada right in front of him. To be honest, that's pretty truthful. And that's how they saw it. It was, you know, German soldiers, you know, privates, corporals, lieutenants, captains, you know, junior, junior officers, junior ranks, literally looking out to sea and seeing this armada just appear on the horizon. And, and pretty soon after that, just they were in a world of pain. Um, cause depending on, on, you know, what kind of major, what beach they were on and uh, they were defending, they were either hit by aircraft first, or by naval bombardment. And, and it didn't really make much difference either way, um, because all they kind of perceived and understood was that a heck of a lot of high explosive and shrapnel was, was just bombarding them. Um, and I, I can't imagine what that would have been like to be under it, because, because many of them weren't in, you know, hugely reinforced concrete bunkers, 20 feet underground and what have you. They were in trenches in sandy soil, you know, with with uh, wooden bars holding the holding the, the, the sandbag, um, and just you know a few feet of earth if they were lucky, and it must have been just utterly utterly horrendous to be under you know bombardment from wave after wave of aircraft, followed by you know battle battle cruisers, battleships, monitors, destroyers, you know you name it, just pounding every single position. Um, that the Allies thought contained a German soldier. Presumably they react. So how do they, uh, they're going to, they're going to say, right, we need to do this, 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 and this. what do they do? Right, first thing they do is, is call for help and say, we're being invaded. It's here. They're here. You know, no need to, no need to worry about where else it is and so on. It's here and it's happening now. Uh, and the reaction throughout the entire German command structure was, nah. That's it's, it's all. Yeah, are you sure? Are you sure it's them? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Take another look. Oh my God, I'm telling you now. Well, how many ships are there? There are literally thousands. There aren't that many ships in the world. Yeah, but trust me, they are, and they're here. Um, and it was just they just didn't believe it. And that's mad. What's so that? How does how does it, it, it just think it's, it's it's the it's the craziness of human beings. And and at the time, Hitler had gone. Hitler was asleep because. He had, he was, he was, I mean, obviously a monster, goes without saying, but he also had a very, very strange working day. Um, so he didn't get up till kind of, you know, like midday type of thing. Um, and then he'd start work. He'd mainly start work kind of, you know, late afternoon. And then he worked very, very late into the evening 
and then you know sit there with a load of cronies until four in the morning telling them what a genius he was um, and then he'd go to bed oh my uh, god course, that's you know, like my working day under lockdown <laughs> exactly he was he was probably he was he was in lockdown before lockdown um and so and, and, and so so no one wanted to wake him up so i mean you know you can you can imagine this 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 comedy you know happening almost outside his door going oh you know the allies they're invading france finally we've got to tell we've got to tell the fuhrer and they said no nobody's asleep oh okay that's a bit of a challenge um do we knock on the door do we not oh i don't know leave him in for an hour can you hear him is he awake you know i mean it's just it's just utterly crazy so, so they try to, to 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 call for help and explain what's happening and, and no one really believes them um their ability to to fight back at, at Either the, the aircraft that are bombarding them or the, the ships is really limited because you know all of the big guns that can fire out and and hit a ship you know ten miles or fifty miles out and so on they're all in the part of Calais. Now um, you know in Normandy no no they, they've got artillery pieces and these things can fire you know a few miles um, you know best and so on but, but that's that's all everything else they've got just isn't big enough or powerful enough to hit the Allies. So, so in effect, they've just got to wait it out and, 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 you know, you've got to hunker down and wait until the landing craft come in and then they've got a chance to hit back. And in the meantime, it's just a case of try and survive. Um, and, 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 you know, that's it. And, and just, you know, keep your weapon right next to you. As a spectacle, that scene on Omaha Beach at the beginning of Save It Private Ryan is fantastic, but it's not quite as it was, is it? It's, it's been made to look as, as bad as possible but is it perhaps exaggerating the experience and the success that the Germans had when those waves started hitting the beach I mean it is they definitely they definitely dramatize it you're you're absolutely right for, for I mean and, and that's not you know decrying um you know what those what those guys went through when they hit the beach I can't because of course what 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 they don't perhaps cover but because it's it's not very dramatic and it takes too long is and I always thought this when I was when I was looking at I was younger, is that you get in the landing craft and, and the beach is just over there. It's like a few hundred metres. So so you're in this landing craft for I don't know, ten, fifteen minutes tops, and then and then you're hitting the beach. But but in reality, you're in that landing craft miles offshore. And and you're looking at an hour, hour and a half more before you before you hit the beach. So you're in this thing that that, that isn't designed to be at sea very long and is rolling in the swell. Everyone is just throwing up left, right, and centre. You start to throw up in your in your helmet, and then throwing it outside, and then you're just throwing up on the floor. You know, I can't imagine throwing up in your helmet, emptying it, and then having to put your helmet back on your head. That's got to be a pretty bad day. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's not how you'd want to start, is it's it? It's not. I mean, I know you've got to have helmet hair, but that that's taking that's helmet puke hair. So that's got to be bad. And, but then, yes, when when they when they hit it, um, you know, the, the the Germans were able to to bring. Um, a concentrated, uh, particularly heavy machine gun fire um, on it, but the, the, the sheer mass of, of landing craft that they were facing mitigated against, um, you know, just 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 too much destruction. Um, you know, there were too many allies landing and, and too few defenders, um, and of course, you know, that those defenders just kept on. They bring down fire, uh, and of course, as soon as as soon as they were they were doing that. Um, the ships in close would be pinpointing, and they could, they could, they could pinpoint, you know, individual machine guns almost, um, and silence them with a, with a massive weight of cannon fire. Um, but of course, you know, it, it's still, if you're, if you're an infantryman, uh, you know, a ranger or an engineer getting off one of those landing craft, 
trying to cover two, three hundred meters of, of, of beach without any cover against you know German MG 42s that are firing at a rate of 1,200 rounds a minute. Um, that's that, that's pretty dramatic, um, and, and and it does capture it very well. But you know, it does make it look in the circumstances as though there were you know 20,000, 30,000 American casualties in the space of a few minutes, which of course there weren't. Um, but it was it was just horrendous, and it was of course you know it was it was Omaha where the Germans had their best chance yeah. um, of 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 actually not not defeating the invasion, but throwing a massive spanner in the works. Yeah, that end with the cliff is pretty horrific to be facing that coming off a landing craft, isn't it? It is. I mean, and, and, and you know, all the more if, if you, you know, if, if when you when you go to the beaches now and you're on the bluffs um, above them, you're going, geez, this is actually quite high. Mm. You know, this isn't this isn't like a, a sand dune at Lytham um, and so on, 20 meters up, and then and then lo and behold, you're all fine. This thing is 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 high. There's a lot of it, and there's there's hardly anywhere where off the beach. You know that the draws, as they're called, um, which is the kind of the, the, the cut-throughs that they've made to be able to get off the beach, that they're few and far between, um, and that, that just channels the troops. So, so all those soldiers are, are, are piling off their landing craft, and then they're being drawn like magnets to these draws to try and get off the beach. And of course, needless to say, that's where the Germans have concentrated their defensive positions. Yeah, I see what you mean about it being their best chance of throwing a spanner in the works, because if you're a German and you're watching that massive force coming towards you, sitting up there or sitting in one of those concrete bunkers halfway up, you're going to feel pretty good about your chances of putting a stop to it, aren't you? Well, this this is the thing. And of course, you know, it, it's the, the lack of communication um, from the from the beach, you know, from the American troops back to the, to, to the ships, because, um, of course, that was, you know, a real challenge for them is... All they're seeing is just endless firing. The Germans are still firing. So they're looking through the binoculars from the boats going, what the hell's going on? And they're just hearing, you know, horrendous tales coming back, snatch radio messages going, we're not off the beach. We can't get off the beach. They're dead. They're dead everywhere. Um, you know, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And, you know, th- they really did seriously consider that, that, right, that's it. Omaha's a lost cause. We're going to have to pull the troops off. And, and, you know, the Germans didn't know that, but, but, you know, for them, yeah, you're right. You're sitting in a bunker. You've got your you've got your machine gun. You've got boxes of ammo, and all you're seeing is guys piling off landing craft in front of you, and you're just pulling that trigger, uh, and you know, putting on the special gloves to change the barrel when it got too hot, and you know, putting on a new barrel and loading more ammunition, firing, 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 and you're just thinking, actually, this isn't bad. They're not they're not they're not getting off the beach. They're not getting towards us. You know, we can we can hold this lot. And the German army was was absolutely one that was was uh, built on the counterattack. So their idea was, no matter what happened, as soon as you were attacked, counterattack, counterattack, counterattack. And so so those guys in the bunkers have been told, don't you worry, you just you just keep on killing them, uh, and so on. And you know, you're, you're, the other guys they're coming behind you. The counterattack is coming, um, and so on. And it's going to arrive at the beach, and all you need to do is hold until they arrive. And then that's it, we've won. Did you find any accounts by German soldiers on the ground that tell us what they thought about the face of it? The, the accounts of the, of the veterans that I spoke to and that, that, that I found and so on, all of them were just, that they experienced it really viscerally. Um, you know, they, 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 they were primarily young guys. There were some older ones uh, and so on, but most of, them, most of them were very young. A lot of them, it was their first taste of battle. Um, so they didn't have the experience to fall back on. And, and it was the shock 
it was the absolute shock uh, of, of what they were facing. Um, and, and, and then all of a sudden they're killing people and, they, and they're killing people usually at quite a distance. Um, and that's, that's a very different sensation from killing someone up close. I've, I've spoken to a lot of, of, of veterans who fought on the Russian front and what they remember mainly is, is that close up killing. Um, yeah. so, you know, with a, with an entrenching tool, with a bayonet, you know, strangling the other guy to death, um, that sort of thing. It, it, it's where, where it really is close. Whereas for the, for the guys that there, were there on D-Day, it was the, the vast majority of it was at a distance. It was hundreds of meters and, and they couldn't see the people they were killing. They could see them as individuals, but they couldn't see their face, you know, look into their eyes, you know, or anything like that. Um, and, and then just being, being overwhelmed by sheer firepower. That was, that was the other thing that kept, that came through in all of the, uh, the accounts I read and the conversations I have was they would just, they, 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 even those who, who were experienced and fought on the Russian front and thought, unsurprisingly, that they knew a hell of a lot about war. Um, they were just overwhelmed. They, they couldn't believe what they were facing. Everything was of a, of a, of a scale and a size that just was, was, you know, their senses just couldn't take it in. Yeah, it's like sensory overload, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And, and I can, you know, completely understand it. Um, and so on. And, and it's just, you know, that, that, in the phrase shock and awe, um, that, that a modern military machine and, and, you know, the West always, the Anglo-Americans always, particularly the Americans, you know, you know, that was, that was their credo. Their military credo was to use material to win the war, not use men. Yeah. Um, you know, it was just use weight of fire, of power, weight of explosive and so on. So, so if they had to use 10 tons of explosive to kill one, one man, so be it. Um, it, you know, it didn't, it didn't matter. Um, it could fire as many artillery rounds, as many machine gun bullets, whatever. Um, it did not matter. It was just, just, just overwhelm their senses and overwhelm them um, rather than, you know, do it, do it with human flesh. So they do get off the beaches. Tell us how the Germans react to that. So they're, they've been basically punched in the face with this overwhelmingly massive landing. How do they try and rally? And, and, you know, on the, on the, on the day itself, they, they do try and follow through, um, with that philosophy, that counterattack philosophy. So, so it was, they practiced it, you know, they thought they were ready. Um, so it was a case of, right, okay, after the initial shock of Christ, they're landing, uh, and so on, right, everything into, into place. Um, and on the, the Anglo-Canadian beaches, um, there was the, the only German panzer division that was close enough really to the beaches to do anything was the 21st panzer um that was they went right righty righty ho go on in in the panzers start them up and and away we go there's only one slight problem with that was was their commander um was in a nightclub in paris at the time um and so on because because um he was a guy called edgar feuchtinger who was not uh you know a, a rommel you know this this guy was no julius caesar that's for sure and he liked he liked a bit of the high life um, so, you know, against orders, he, he used to sneak out of his headquarters of an evening with his driver, head into, head into Paris and, um, uh, you know, pop a, pop your bottle of champagne and, um, get some, get some fizzy, um, down him and, and see his mistress and, and generally have a, have a good time. When he's there having to, to drive back, his entire division, uh, as he's on his way back from Paris, is kind of leadless and they sit around mm-hmm. waiting, waiting to go. By the time they actually get going, the, the, the Panzers themselves are under the command of a, of a really fascinating guy who I wish 
I'd managed to interview before he passed, but he passed away in the 80s, um, you know, way before I started to do this, obviously. Um, and, and his name was a, was a guy called, he was a guy called Herman von Oppeln Bronikowski, which is a great name anyway. Um, and he was a, he was a, a, an Olympic medal winning equestrian, um, from before the war. Uh, and he was, you know, dashing in his, his black panzer uniform. He had a knight's cross and all this type of thing. Very, very experienced guy. And he led the, the, the German panzers on a counterattack. And um, he got, got to within literally a couple of miles of the beaches. Uh, and, and, and they were you know, heading for a ridge line. And if they got to this ridge line, they'd be overlooking the Anglo-Canadian beaches and they would be able to, to, you know, die for them and really cause some, cause some chaos. Um, and, you know, without knowing that they were actually going to be there, um, um, a relatively small number of British troops had got forward and they, they got to the top of the ridge, you know, literally minutes. I mean, about half an hour or so, 30 minutes before the Germans did. Um, and they stood their ground, beat back the German attack. The Germans, for some reason, didn't press their attack, um, which, you know, is it, it, quite surprising given, given their training. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so they pulled back and, and that was the, the end of the crisis. But of course, the fascinating thing about Opel Bronikowski was that, you know, a, a year previous, well, more than a year previous, he was, he was basically, um, in reserve behind the, behind Stalingrad. Um, and so he was in a, he was in the command of a, a panzer regiment there, um, as well. Um, and of course that was when the, the Russians broke through and they were just about to surround them. And it was his panzers that were meant to, to, to drive forward and defeat them and therefore would have averted the Stalingrad disaster. But, but it just, his attack then fell apart. Um, a lot of his panzers wouldn't actually start because unbelievably mice had actually eaten through the electric cables. So they couldn't start the things. Um, and, and that's so, so, you know, you're looking at this guy. So how, you know, how many times do you hear about one individual who was at two dramatic points in, in, in a conflict where he completely messed up on both occasions? Um, and, you know, led to two stupendous, you know, allied victories, one for the Soviets and, and one for us. Um, I mean, I just find it incredible that the same guy was, was in both places at the same time. But, you know, and, and the, the other, the other place where the Germans, you know, could have made a real difference was, as we said, on Omaha. And, and the guys there who were going to counterattack from the three, you know, 352nd Infantry Division, um, they were loaded up with ammunition and it was a case of, right, do we go forward? And their divisional commander was a guy called Dietrich Kreis, who was, mm. who was, he was experienced, served on the Russian front, knew what he was doing. And his line was just under attack from, from all over the place. And looking at it, he, he, he got to a, a real decision point. So a crux point. And it was like, do I either use, you know, use my men, the men I've got to try and form a, a cohesive line, um, with the, the divisions on my left and right? Um, or do I launch them forward in a, in an all or nothing attack to get to my guys who are still fighting on Omaha beach? Um, and, 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 you know, take the chance and, and throw the, throw the Americans back into the sea. And militarily, you know, the, the, the logic and the, the rationale was to, to do exactly what he did, which was, yeah. no, I'm not going to attack. I'm going to, you know, form a line, uh, and, and, and concentrate my troops, you know, to make sure I can, I've got a cohesive force facing, facing opposition. But of course, 
actually, it, you know, from a German point of view, it was totally the wrong thing to do. Is, is that that was the, that was the point. And you might only have a, a pair of threes, but you've got to play them. You've got to play them because you've got no other choice. So, so he, he made that decision. And of course he didn't know that, 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 you know, that decision was going to be so, uh, so important. And, and he took in military terms the right decision, but in terms of Germany's, you know, position at the time, completely the wrong one. I have to ask, which beach were they the least successful on the Germans? Where did they get really trashed? Uh, uh, Juno um, was pretty bad. It's where the Canadians came across. Um, they just, they barely did anything on there. Uh, and Utah. So Utah, which was the other American beach. Uh, and, that, and that was because of the lie of the land. So when you go from Omaha, which has got, yeah, the big cliffs and the bluffs, um, and you're a couple of hundred metres high and the draws, the forcing soldiers into um, into killing zones. On Utah, really, it was live and hands. You know, so, so it's, there's, there's sand dunes that are 10 feet high. Um, kind of if that, there's no, there's no good defensive positions. Um, there weren't many German troops there, there anyway. Um, the, the Allied tanks, um, that were landing, you know, the, the old swimming tanks. Yeah. Um, actually, they got ashore there, um, straight away and barely lost a, barely lost a tank again, which didn't happen at Omaha. So they have, the infantry had tank support straight away and they pretty much rolled over the Germans on Utah in, in, no time at all. Um, I mean, they just they just had nowhere to nowhere to fight from, um, and and yeah, the casualties on Utah were very very light. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I love some of these personal accounts that you've been telling us about. What is the single most, um, your favorite German account you've used in this book? Oh, God, now that... There must be one. I know you're going to be like, oh, but there's that one and there's that one and there's that one. And I know it's a horrible question, but which one did you see and just go... I am using that, and no one is going to stop me from including. I, I think, I think for me, it, it, it was it was Yanka on a young officer called um, uh, Yanka who was on uh, was on the Utah beach, uh, and and for me, I absolutely love that because he was 
Um, he was a Knights Cross veteran um, from the Eastern Front, uh, and so. On. But but you know he didn't he didn't look like anything. He, he wore big specs and, and he was fairly short and he was quite skinny. Um, so he's not this kind of you know blonde Aryan Superman. Yeah. Uh, and, so, and he had a he had a, a company uh, of guys that he was in command of at Utah. The vast majority had no experience. Um, or were, were uh, you know, medically unfit retreads. And, and he appeared and, and just thought, he looked around at his position and it was like, going, what the hell am I going to do with this? You know, there's, there's, I can't defend this. Um, it's, but he just, he just did his best with the very little that, that, that he had. But then faced with, faced with the assault, um, he got half buried um, under the sand from a, from a shell blast. Um, and, and he just, you know, fought with a rifle but was, Concussed, he didn't know what he was, where he was going. Most of his men were were dead by that point. Um, so it was just kind of him until literally he kind of you know, almost woke up because you know concussion had really had really blasted him. Uh, and so and there was this American, you know, with a typical kind of GI with his cigarette out the corner of his mouth, yeah. kind of you know <laughs> saying saying that's it, you know, for 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 you, German, the war is over. And you know even then he was scrabbling for his rifle. Um, so he's bleeding from shrapnel wounds, you know, his ear, his eardrums have gone and all that type of thing. And he was scrambling through, and this, 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 this Americans could kick the rifle away and said, don't be stupid, you know, for God's And it was just that, such a human moment. Um, and so I just, I thought that was incredible. And then, you know, taking, to, he was, he was ten, and taken to, down to the, to, to the beachside. Yeah. Um, to be, to be put on board. And, and, and his own artillery opened up. Um, and one of the group of prisoners he was with got injured by their own shrapnel. And he's like, oh, my God, I'm like, I've survived. I've survived this thing. And I'm out getting blown up by my own side. And, and, it's, and you're just thinking, this is this is the madness of war. And, he, and then, then he gets taken on board, you know, one of the one of the ships. So he goes back in an empty landing craft with a load of other prisoners and they get aboard a ship. And of course, you know, sailors, sailors are much like soldiers and they just they steal everything they can lay their hands on. Um, and of course, all the all the sailors are trying to grab all of his kit. You know, give us your medals and your and your ribbons and and your bits and pieces and your watch and etc. Uh, and then you know, one of them one of them basically kicks him in the ass um, and knocks him over on the boat. Um, and it, and, it, and it's just and that's just so that's just so real. Um, I thought that was just an incredible because there's this guy. He's not you know he isn't this big dramatic player um, and so on. But you know he survived this and it was over for him so quickly. Um, I think, but at the same time, everything he went through, it was, oh, it's brilliant. I mean, it was just, a, it was absolutely fascinating to, to, to read that because it was just so, it was so real. Um, and it kind of epitomized so much of, of, of the German resistance on that day. Was there ever a moment on that day when they thought they were going to be able to beat this off? I think none of the soldiers that, that, that uh, I interviewed or read or got the accounts from, um, thought that they were going to, thought that they were going to be able to. Once they, once they'd seen what they were up against, um, none of them, you know, that all of them were just like survival, survival, survival. That's all we're thinking. Just, just survive, survive, survive. None of them really thought that they were going to, to, to defeat this. Some of their commanders most definitely did. Um, you know, they, they, they weren't used to losing. Um, and, and they, you know, particularly those that served on the, the, the Russian front, they, they were used to being up against it. You know, for a long time, they've been outnumbered and outgunned uh, and so on. And they didn't think that much of it. They thought, well, you know, in the end, it comes down to human beings. And, and 
we're better and, you know, we can make a difference. And a lot of it was so much that they didn't think much of us. Um, yeah. particularly that, particularly that they just did not think that the, that the British, they thought the British were, um, you know, they respected the British army, uh, and the Navy and what have you. They thought that we were, you know, dogged in defense, um, and so on, but they didn't think much of our, our attack. Understandable. I can, I can understand that point of view. They didn't think anything of the Americans at all. They really didn't. Um, they thought of them very, very disparagingly. Have they had a big showdown with the Americans yet? They haven't, have they? No, no. I mean, none of that, because of course they, they fought them in North Africa, and Tunisia, you know, Catherine Pass, and, and, and yeah. all that type of stuff. And of course they fought them in Italy, but re- in relatively small numbers. I, I, the German soldiers that had faced the Americans were, were few and far between. And, um, many of them hadn't kind of rotated out, if you, if you see what I mean, in terms of gone to other fronts. So, so if you were, if you were a veteran, uh, you know, German combat veteran um, in Normandy, um, on D-Day and so on. Your experience was, was on the Russian front primarily. So you, you wouldn't have been in North Africa and you wouldn't have been in Italy. Um, so, so you just, you, you hadn't come across the Americans. So, so what you, what you had heard was, oh, well, you know, then you, it's all about materiel. You know, it, it, it is, it's, it's planes, trains and automobiles. They've got endless, endless, you know, bombs and shells and aircraft. That's the way they fight their wars. And as long as you really stick it out, um, then we'll be fine. And, and they'd seen that in Italy. They'd seen, oh yeah, big invasions, but you know the German army had, had managed to retreat. It hadn't got you know massively smashed, uh, and so I managed to hold them, uh, you know, month after month after month in Italy, uh, which of course you know completely different situation in in, in France, of course, um, with terrain and etc. But but that's what they thought. So they hadn't really come across them, and they thought, yeah, we we can we can take this lot. Yeah. Was there a possibility of a counterattack by sea? From the German side, most definitely not. I mean, the, the, the Kriegsmarine was, you know, the Cinderella of the, uh, of the three armed services, um, of, of, of Hitler's Germany. I mean, it really was. You know, Germany had always been uh, a land animal. Uh, you know, yeah. Anthony, Anthony Eden always said it, you know, it's an elephant facing a whale. Um, when he compared, you know, us, us to them. And, and, and he was absolutely right. Britain traditionally a sea power with a small army. Um, that was used to, you know, fight colonial wars, etc. Uh, mainly using local troops, um, but it was the, it was keeping over the sea lanes with the British Navy was the, was the key. Whereas Germans, everything else really it was about land, um, and that that's what they thought. And you know, the, the Kriegsmarine had tried before the war to he had this you know thing called Plan Z, which was the idea was to to almost do what they did before the First World War and, and build you know, a, a navy to to challenge the the, the Royal Navy. But Hitler was, was never really going to go for it. Um, and despite all of the, you know, the, the, the threat of the submarines, he never really went for the U-boats either. Um, so the numbers of U-boats being produced was, was, you know, tended to be in the dozens, um, you know, per month rather than the hundreds, which is what they really needed. Um, so, so by the time D-Day happened, a German, and no German naval vessel of any size, you know, even a destroyer and what have you, let alone a, a cruiser or a battleship, would go anywhere near the English Channel um, because it would just it would be sunk on sight. Um, and so they did have, you know, they had some 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 e boats and some s boats, um, mm. in in effect speed boats with torpedoes. Um, they had a few. So so on the day themselves, you know, uh, rather famously, a guy called Heinrich Hoffmann uh, led um, an, an attack by a flotilla. Um, of, of these fast speedboats on 
uh, on the on the Armada, but it was pinpricks really. And again, same same with the same with the U-boats. Um, you know, to get there means you know most of their bases were down in the Bay of Biscay, so they were just told, well, you've got to you've got to you've got to try and make it. Um, so they had to to steam in for speed. They had to steam you know on the, on the surface, which made them huge targets for for Allied aircraft. Um, and they had to do it during daylight. Um, and and even if they'd all got to the invasion uh, point, which of course they they, they didn't, the, the sheer numbers um, meant mitigated against them. They would have had to sunk, you know, sink a hundred Allied ships apiece to even start to dent them. Um, so the Germans just didn't have the only the only real threat to sea power after that could have made the difference was air power. But of course, you know, by then the Anglo-American air forces were huge. Yeah. Um, and, and they were, they were really good. I mean, you know, they had great aircraft with, with, you know, pilots who had a lot of experience and a hell of a lot of flying hours. Um, and they hugely outnumbered the Germans in the air. Um, and, and, you know, just, I would not want to be a German fighter pilot going, going up in the, you know, over the, over the Normandy beaches, um, at that time. That would have been, that would have been akin to suicide. I'm interested to know in uh, how did the Germans experience the paratroopers jumping behind Germany lines? I mean, we know the whole band of brothers. We've all seen, you know, the Americans jumping. But how did the Germans experience it all? Yeah, I mean, for them, they knew, well, they they thought uh, that it was likely that the the Allies were going to land paratroopers. So they'd done loads and loads of exercises about it. Um, So the run up to it, you know that they they flooded loads of, of, of water meadows by the sea and and by canals and all sorts to stop gliders landing and, and so on. They put loads of obstacles um, in fields, so it might be you know steel girders or just just you know sharpened wooden stakes. I mean you know all all a bit Agincourt, but there you go. Um, just in fields to stop gliders coming down for paratroopers to uh, you know to land on. And they've done constant exercises. So middle of the night. Alarm, 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 paratroop landing in this place, right, you know, get yourselves all together, down we go for it, and, and so on. And, and so they were ready for it, but even so, it took them by surprise. Um, because, you know, you can, you can train for something, um, and, and we always did, but, it, but when it happens, it, you know, for some reason, you go, oh, that's a bit of a surprise. Um, I don't really know why. Something about the human psyche. Um, so you can train and then it, and then it happens and you go, Oh, I never thought that, I never saw that coming. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that's really because all of a sudden it's real. And, 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 and for a lot of them, they're also thinking, um, because of the deception that the Allies used. So, so, you know, again, famously they, you know, they threw out dummy, uh, uh dummies and with parachutes, with, with firecrackers and fireworks and, um, and so on, so on. So a lot of the time the Germans were chasing their own tails. Um, and, and, they, they, they also, they overestimated what paratroopers could do. Because the issue with a paratrooper is, is you are, almost all paratroopers are volunteers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're highly motivated. They're extremely well trained, uh, and very, very aggressive. Um, you know, going to a, going to a pub in Colchester and you'll see that. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but they're lightly armed. They're just lightly armed infantry. You know, they can't carry tanks and artillery pieces and all this type of thing with them and a ton of ammo. You know, they, they jump into to battle with a, a, a rifle, a Tommy gun and a few rounds and, and, and hand grenades. Um, and, you know, so, so a determined defense can actually really give them a, a problem as, you know, Arnhem was the 
uh, atypical example of that. Yeah. Um, but, but, but for, for the Germans, it was all of a sudden they've got these guys falling, falling around them. And then at the same time or near enough the same time, the invasion's coming. So, so at first they're going, is this just a diversion? Um, you know, where are these guys? Um, and they're starting to see them coming through, but they're going, Oh my God, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of them. Does this mean we're going to be invaded? And that was, again, that came through in a lot of the accounts that when they were, you know, when they were dealing with the paras, all, their, their minds were not on the paras. Their minds were, what, what does this actually mean? Does this mean we're about to, we're about to get hit by the invasion proper? Cause they knew the invasion wasn't going to come by air. It was going to come on, you know, by sea. So it was like, does this mean, is this just a diversion? You know, are they, throwing these powers out is it just a raid or does this mean in you know in the next few minutes stroke hours we're about to get hit by a cataclysm your book doesn't actually actually stop with d-day does it i mean how far in the timeline do you go in your book Uh, it's a really good question and what i wanted to do um was cover really until the, the, uh, uh, the the germans lost france um, and hence the, you know, subtitle for the book, How the Wehrmacht, you know, lost France. And, and that's, I wanted to cover it until the end of really the Falaise battle, when the Germans collapsed and then headlong retreat, uh, which was, you know, end August, beginning September, uh, with the majority of France, um, then having been liberated, uh, cause the invasion, you know, uh, anvil had happened down in the south as well. So, so the, uh, you know, the Americans had landed on the French Riviera. Uh, and we're charging up from the, the south of France to the to the German border, um, just n- north of Switzerland. And so, so I wanted to cover all of that, uh, and really, you know, it, it is that because you know there's this big focus on D-Day, and understandably so. But the fact of the matter is, is that it didn't end there. Um, you know, it was a hugely successful day, um, you know, for the Allies. Um, but, it, but you know, the Germans still had their chances. They they were still in the game. And the fighting then onwards was, was, was brutal. Um, and it really turned into, you know, Normandy, it turned into a real grind. Um, and, you know, a lot of it was, was, again, it came through in so many of the veterans' testimonies. It was almost First World War-esque, you know, and it was, you're fighting for, for hedgerows or for a hill or for a, a, a trench. Um, and it was, you know, really, really close in. Um, and just drained. And, and, you know, for the Anglo-Americans as well, it was their first real taste. And for most of the, the units that fought in Normandy, it, you know, they hadn't seen combat elsewhere. They, they were green divisions. Yeah. It was their first real taste of, of combat against, you know, eventually the Germans did start to bring in some of their, some of their best. Um, and that's when the, the Allies, you know, really, i.e., the frontline soldiers, really realised what they were what they were up against um, in terms of, you know, if we're going to win the war, we're going to have to fight these guys every single inch of the way back to back into Germany, um, and and that must have been horrific. Um, I mean, you see some of the, the casualty reports uh, from you know British units and American units. I mean, we you know we had to constantly disband. Um, frontline regiments and, and, and even divisions in relatively short period of time because they were burnt out. Um, you yeah. know, the, the, the casualties and the frontline companies in particular. So the casualties overall in a 15,000, you know, strong division might not have been, you know, overly much. There might have been, you know, two, two and a half thousand, but they were pretty much concentrated all in the, 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 the frontline rifle platoons. Um, so they were just gone. 
So, so you know, you'd look around and you go, great, I've got artillery and I've got the supply guys and, you know, all the logistics and they're all there, which is great. But who are they supplying? There's, there's, there's no one in the line because they're, they're all gone. Um, you know, and you, you read reports such as Americans going, you know, they've done reports saying, oh, uh, frontline soldiers, you know, shouldn't be in the line for, for more than, you know, kind of 30 days and then they need rotating out. Um, otherwise, otherwise they just, you know, it, it, it's, it's too much. And, and they went, yeah, we understand that, but we've, but we've got no choice. So we're going to keep them in the line. Um, and they said at 90 days, the frontline infantrymen enter a vegetative state. Um, and that's, and they said, well, there's nothing we can do. We've just got to keep them there. And, you know, for the Germans, it was even worse because they, they had no concept of, of being rotated out. Once you were there, you were there until you were dead. Mm. Um, or you'd, or you'd won. Um, and, and they weren't going to do that. So, so unfortunately for them, it was mainly the former and not the latter. Um, I have to ask you about your title. Is it a wee bit provocative? It's not the first book to have this title. And the last one, that book, there's been some controversy around the veracity of the sources, hasn't there? Did you choose it deliberately? And are you hoping that this is going to be like the new definitive work, thanks to your level of detail? That's, I think, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's, it's yeah, Holger Eckert's work, which is, you know, DJ through Germanized, and that's the, that's what obviously, you know, read it. Um, in the, some of it, you know, I, I have no issue with. And again, I, I, I read about the, the challenges to it and, and, and so on. And some the of it. The problem thought, is some people think that they're not all first hand, real first hand sources. Is that the yes, issue? Yes. That's the issue. And, yeah. and I can, and I can, and I can see that. Um, I can, but, but having read them, uh, and kind of cross referencing myself with other veterans, yeah. um, talking about the, you know, the, the, the same beaches and the same units and so on. It has to be said, from, from my point of view, a lot of it rang true. There were some that, that I was dubious about, and, and I therefore chose not to use them. There was one account in his book of, uh, um, it was an, an officer talking about, clearly, it was talking about an, an, an airburst weapon, um, you know, a, a, a secret weapon system that was air fuel explosive. Um, and it wasn't really explained in the book. Um, but, but, you know, it was all hinting that, oh, this would change the balance of the war. And then for a whole series of reasons, they, you know, we, we didn't use it on the day. That, and that, that to me, that was a huge question mark. Cause I, I read that. I went, Ooh, that doesn't, that doesn't ring true it, for, for a whole range of, 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 of reasons. Um, you know, one, when did the Germans, uh, you know, when did the Nazis have a weapon that they were afraid to use? Um, you know, yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah, when when did they ever kind of pull back on moral grounds? You know, oh no, we can't do that. That's a bit dodgy. Um, you know, they they weren't known for that. Um, so so, and and the fact is, the Germans never used any such weapon during the war. So so it wasn't a case of oh they used it on other fronts. Um, so therefore there was the possibility that they had it. So so yes, and, and when I when I read his work, if there was anything that I thought was was you know untrue. Or, or just dubious, and I, I just couldn't cross-reference it and check it. Then, then I, I didn't use it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's. I, I mean, it's, you don't write a book to spite someone else's book. It's you have to no. put too much effort in. You, you have to have way too much energy and time on your hands to do that. But um, what you've done is create your own book, and yes, it has the same title, but it's the level of detail that's the real difference, isn't it? And I, 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 I didn't just want it to be. Um, here you go. Here is, 
you know, what, what, what Eckhurst did, here's seven, eight, nine, ten, um, you know, full length veterans reports. So, so it's just a case of, right, chapter one is, you know, soldier A talking, chapter two, soldier B talking, so, chapter, and so on. He says, I wanted to put it in the context of, of, you know, everything that happened, you know, on the day and in the campaign. And, and use really that soldier's experience to, to, you know, give some of the, uh, you know, the, the big picture and the strategy, but really then, then, then narrow it down to what was, what was that soldier looking down a gun sight, um, or, or, you know, fighter pilot trying to, to avoid getting blasted out of the sky or whatever it was, giving their viewpoint within what is, you know, the, 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 the massiveness of, of war. Cause it's, it's so, it's, I mean, I always thought it myself when we used to, you know, go go on on even live, big live try, live firing exercises, say in, in in Canada, as well. The fighting always seemed to, I it was sort of simulated, of course, his exercise. It always seemed to be somewhere else, you know, miles away. You could hear it just about, and you could see it, um, you know, bits and pieces, but you couldn't really assess what was going on. Um, and, and, you know, and then all of a sudden it'd be on top of you and you'd be in the middle of it for what would seem five minutes and then it's gone somewhere else. And, 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 and that's kind of eye level experience. That's what I, I wanted to get over. It's really interesting what we're saying, um, in that you have these first hand accounts and perhaps accounts that maybe this guy used them and just didn't verify them well enough um in terms because this is the thing with oral history isn't it you get that first layer where you can interview the people that were actually there and experienced this but then do we have to wait till they're gone before we can approach it properly and analytically and sort of question anything they've given us very much so and of course it's it's you know you have to rely i mean what do the police say it's it's if you know when they see a crime if you've got an eyewitness you know take whatever they say with a pinch of salt because what a human being you know swears that they've seen might not actually be what they've seen because at the time particularly if if the um, events they are watching or involved in are massively stressful dramatic and and so on which of course you know combat most definitely is then then the mind does play tricks yeah and and you remember things you're absolutely sure yes i remember that that's exactly what i saw that's exactly what happened and then, you know, it turns out that's not what you saw and that's not what happened. But it's but not even as, in, you can't even say like they lied. It's not necessarily yeah. intentional, is it? Exactly. And, and, you know, there's also, there is, there is that second there. I mean, you know, from Alex, from obviously my, a lot of the books that I've um, uh, written in the past about, you know, Voffen SS veterans in particular, mm. the majority of whom served, just served on the, on the Russian front. And, you know, these guys, do I think that any of them were involved in mass murder? No, I don't. Uh, and so I got no evidence um, at all that they were. Do I think that at least some of them, um, you know, shot prisoners um, or, you know, suspected partisans and burnt villages down, all that type of thing? Yes, I'm pretty sure they, they, they did. Did any of them admit that? No, they don't. Mm. Um, and, you know, they they come out with a they have a there's almost a code um that, that that they use so so you know the language that they use so they always turn around and say oh oh yes well of course we used to shoot terrorists um or saboteurs um or or you know um, uh you know that's terrorists saboteurs partisans um is the other one so so but then define people, one of those in the midst of war absolutely and then and then you try to kind of dig down but again you you, you 
you know, particularly when you're interviewing, um, you know, face to face, you're, you're doing it, you know, they are, they are only there voluntarily. They're not under, you know, pain of death to speak to you. Uh, and, you know, you, you, it's how far do you push the line and, and where is that line? Because you need to ask difficult questions because if you don't, you're not doing your job as a, uh, as a historian. Um, but at the same time, you've still got to, you know, elicit information. Um, and, and you won't get anything uh, from them if they just clam up. Yeah. Um, if they go, no, you're going to, you know, you're just going to portray me as, 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 as a Nazi and a, and a murderer. So I'm not going to answer anything. Uh, and so, so, so it's the ways and means of, of, of how you do it, how far you push an individual, um, you know, and kind of peel back layers. And, and most of them, I'm absolutely sure when, when you know, having, having interviewed so many now, you know, literally dozens and dozens of the, of these guys is that for, for many of them, they have, they blanked out of their mind. So they, so if they did do anything like that, if they did shoot, um, you know, women, children, whatever is, is they actually can't remember it because they, they've convinced themselves over decades that, that it didn't happen, that they didn't do it, that, that it, it, of course it happened, but it wasn't them. It was somebody else. They never saw it. You know, they never took part in it um, and so on, even though some of the evidence might very well be to the contrary. They were in units that most definitely, you know, did do, uh, um, you know, that sort of, that sort of thing. And you can see it recorded in the uh, in the unit diaries and, and you know, all that sort of, and, and, you know, where my reports and, and so on. So the paperwork's there and, you know, yeah, they've got to, they've got to have been involved in some way, but they just, you know, it's not that they're not admitting to it per se, but yeah, it's the, the human mind just plays funny games, um, you know, particularly, particularly this far. And it's very rare as well that you get any of them that, that really are, um, not honest, but, but, you know, still embrace what's going on. Now, I interviewed one, it was a Danish, Often SS volunteer. Mm. Um, and he was very elderly. He's passed away now. Um, and he was in a, in his care home. Uh, and he's, he's there in his chair and, um, and, and he started off by saying, Oh, Mr. Trigg, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I was a, I was a, a hundred percent Nazi, um, you know, during the war. He goes, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not so much of a Nazi now. Uh, he goes, I'm just a bit of a Nazi. <laughs> and, and I was like, and, and I was just sitting there going, well, this is a bit surreal. And then the first thing that kind of popped into my head was, was, well, well, you know, when you say you know, just a bit of a Nazi, 10%, 20%, 25%. And also what does, what does a 10% Nazi actually think? You know, oh, I don't yeah. mind killing a few innocent people. Um, but you know, uh, but only people named George or whatever. It's just, yeah. it, it was just too random. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I interviewed the guy for a couple of hours. Um, and then at the end, I was getting ready to leave, and uh, he just said, "Oh, oh yes," and then just flung up a Hitler salute. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I'm just kind of saying, and he goes, "Oh, you, you British would never do that, would you?" And I'm like going, uh, "No, he wouldn't." He said, "Oh, well, I just thought I would." And, and he was just one. Of, again, it was just it was so surreal. It's so surreal. Um, but there's this guy living in this, you know, liberal democracy, um, very very advanced you know, Western states in, in Denmark and thinks just, you know, that's still okay. And he can do that. And it's perfectly normal in lots of ways. It's just, uh, you get uh, the reason that you don't get arrested and sent to jail for doing that. Mr. Waffen SS is because you lost, right? I, I just, exactly. They just don't, <laughs> they just, oh, it's just, it's, it is, it is strange. It really is strange. Wow. Um, but yeah, so, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, 
I always want, you know, readers or listeners to, you know, readers of the books and so on to, to, to make their own judgments about, you know, so I put down testimony and I, I've checked it as far as I possibly can, but I wasn't there, you know, standing or sitting next to this guy, you know, when he supposedly did X, Y or whatever. I, I put it in front of them. If, if I have any doubts about it, I never include it. Um, but, but I want, you know, I want readers to make their own judgments, um, to, 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 you know, say, oh, that's, that fit, sounds incredible. And then hopefully get them just interested. I mean, you know, the, the, I think the best compliment of, uh, you know, someone like myself can be paid is, is that, that oh, I read your book and I was, you know, and it was really interesting. So I went and got some more, yeah. um, you know, even, even if they weren't mine, you know, geez, even, even other people's books, unbelievable. But, um, you know, if, if they, if it twins an interest in history that makes them go and read more, find out more, then then I'm really pleased because it leads me on to my last question is from a viewer or a listener uh, Ms Walters says Eric Axelson was a war historian who was known for being forthright he said when we are capturing war officially we have to remember that the infantry's view is narrow and exaggerated and she wants to know from your personal experience as an infantry officer is it fair and how did you deal with that for the book it's it is but i i think i I can totally understand um what she said because because it's 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 exaggerated really in a way because it's incredibly personal i have lots of friends who are gunnery officers you know uh, tank officers and so on and you know i've I've seen the way that they operate but it's completely different from the experience of literally holding a rifle and and being there and then and then understanding just how um vulnerable you are um, I mean, the first time I did a, my first tour in Northern Ireland, I stepped off a helicopter in the middle of East Tyrone somewhere, in the middle of beautiful, you know, Northern Irish countryside. And, and I started to walk and I was itching the back of my neck like it was going out of fashion because I was sure, 100% sure that I was in a sniper's sights at that moment. And I had no evidence for it. And there was, you know, I had six other guys around me and we were all walking and no one was doing what I was doing. And I didn't, there was nothing to indicate, but I was absolutely sure. And I, I was, I was petrified. I was absolutely petrified. I'm walking along this field, going over a fence, you know, all this type of thing. And I'm thinking any second, I'm not even going to hear the shot. I'm just going to be dead. And, and, and it was incredibly. And I thought, Oh my God, I'm here for six months. You know, if I don't get killed today, how the heck am I going to survive this? You know, if it's going to be every single day that that, that I do this. Um, mm. and, and that was, and then after a while, literally, you just, it's, it's, you go into, you know, auto mode. And it, and it happened really quickly. After about a week of being there, it was, you're, on, you're almost on autopilot. You felt as though you'd been there forever. Um, and and it, it's trying to, trying to, to get over that experience and, and, and what it's like. Um, in, in, you know, in, in a way that people is interesting to, to people, um, is, is, is that's the, that's the challenge. Um, and, and what I like about, for instance, looking at the second world war is that you're doing, you're doing that talking to, to veterans who, who really, they've got nothing else left to, to lose. Yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, unfortunately that most of them are, are you know, going to pass relative to this. There's, there's very few left now. Uh, and so on, they, and so they know that. And, and they've been able to reflect on their experiences and, and, and have some real life experience after, because most of them didn't have much life experience before they had it, because they were all, you know, mainly, mainly they were very young guys. Yeah. 
they've had that life experience and they can really reflect on it about what it was, you know, and, and put it in, in some sort of context. And they've got nothing to hide anymore because they're, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, they're going to die, might as well tell what they know. Um, and, and it's, you know, is it, is it a, is it the same experience for soldiers from, from different kind of eras in a modern age? I mean, obviously it's different across different ages, but yeah, I'd, I'd say a lot of the time, a lot of the time it is. Um, but, but for, for them, because the, the type of warfare they had to endure was of a, of a scale and the, the weaponry involved that we just don't, you know, see today. So, so, you know, no modern British soldier, you know, has waves of enemy aircraft coming over bombing them. Um, you know, simple as that. Um, enemy, enemy does. Um, that's for sure. Just ask the Iraqis, but, but, you know, but, but the Brits don't or the Americans don't. Um, so we don't have, we don't, you don't come under massive, you know, artillery fire. Yeah. Um, you know, well, the, the dangers that you're exposed to t- tends to be, yeah, you know, the IED are on the roadside in, in, in Afghan, um, you know, or, or, or whatever, or the one that, you know, am I just going to put my foot down, um, you know, on this, on this patch of ground and I'm going to blow up a mine. Um, that's the, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a straight, it is, it's a, it's a strange thing. And it's, it's, but at the same time, obviously British army, all volunteers. I mean, I remember my, my now wife, we were engaged at the time. We, we'd moved into, we had our first little, um, little flat uh, outside the barracks that we'd rented and we were engaged to get married. And I was, you know, sitting there on the sofa with her one night and John Major was the prime minister and uh, they said, Oh, we got an announcement from the PM. And he, he came outside number 10 and announced that my brigade was being sent to Bosnia for the war. Yeah. And I just leapt up from the sofa just screaming in joy. Mm. You know, I was going, yes, yes, we're going. It's absolutely brilliant. I was so chuffed. I was over the moon. And then I kind of looked round, and I think it's fair to say Rachel's face was less pleased. You paid for that leap, didn't you? Oh, my God, did I. And, <laughs> but, but, the same, but at the same time, I did it, you know, because I just, you know, and we all wanted to go. I mean, there's a, there's, there's a reason. I mean, you know, the horrendous... Uh, wars that the guys have had to fight, guys and girls have had to fight in the last few years, you know, uh, in, in Iraq and Afghan and so on. And yet, you know, where's the, we're not fighting any wars now in that sense, uh, but we can't recruit soldiers. Mm. You know, why is that? And, and the fact of the matter is, because to be honest, there's a, you know, there are certain individuals, and um, I include myself in that, who for some, well, we've got screw loose and have got this thing is, you know, actually we quite like the idea of going to war. It's not new, is it? It's no, it's nature. definitely not. You are not the only person with a screw loose. John, no. thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about this book. This sounds absolutely fascinating. And I like that we've discussed the difference between this book and the last book with the same name as well. Um, yes. I, I like that. The people now know why this is different and why they need to go out and buy it. So tell everybody again uh, who's released it, when's it out and where can they get it? Right, so it's uh, called D-Day Through German Eyes, um, How the Wehrmacht Lost France. Uh, it's by Amberley Publishing. Uh, and you can get it on you know, either through Amberley Publishing, of course, or, or, of course, where else does everyone go for books? Amazon. Um, so it's out on Amazon and it's in Waterstones uh, and, you know, all over the place. So, so go, to your, go to the interweb, um, type into the what's Google and whatever, 
um, and you know put my name or or put you know D Day through German Eyes, uh, John Trigg, and, and it'll come up with loads and loads of options. Go and buy it. You'll hopefully really really enjoy it. Um, you can you can put it you know put reviews on. Uh, and so on the the best review that I've had so far was was um, I can't remember the the web address of this individual, um, but their, their review was I bought this for a friend. They really liked it. I haven't read it, and and they gave me two stars. Um, which, nice. Which I thought was brilliant. Yeah. I thought, it's always great like, when you get the one. The cover was bent one star. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It did. It did. I got um, on a, on another book. I can't remember which book it was now. Is that the, the individual had ordered it from a from a website, and uh, and their review was still haven't got it yet. One star. So why are you reviewing it if you haven't got it? That was that was yeah that was that was my thinking. It was it was you know it was I didn't actually deliver it to you, or rather I did not deliver it to you. So, so are you reviewing the book or are you reviewing the delivery? Um, but yeah, I love that one. I got it for a friend. They really liked oh, it. We collect those. Three stars, genius. It's yeah. genius. You know, love it. Everyone loves their cruddy one stars review. Apparently, we reduce history to stupidity on History Hack, and we wear that I... with pride. <laughs> <laughs> But the key is, it's D-Day Through Germanite by John Trigg. T-R-I-double-G, not the other guy. That's the one. And, and thank you very, very much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and so I, just just great questions. And, and particularly that one about which one, uh, which one of the stories. I've, I've not been asked that before. Um, and so, yeah, that was that was brilliant. Brilliant. Join us tomorrow when Mark Goldberg will be with us. He's ex-Israeli Defence Force and he's going to be talking to us all about Teddy Collett. Don't miss it. It's a really fascinating spy story for the mid-20th century. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.